Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Shalin and I are recording this show on Wednesday, July 17th, 2019. So, Disneyland's birthday, uh, Drew. I'm, I'm a little surprised you're home. You know, I have... It also coincides with what is mostly the most uh, miserable time of the year here in Southern California. I think the hottest and sweatiest I've ever been was during the 60th when they encouraged people to come dressed in their uh, 1955 finest a few years ago. Do you remember that? So I had a full, I had a dress suit and a tie on and uh, I was sweating profusely. It was, it was Uh uncomfortable. Okay, well, if it's any consolation, you're going to be down at San Diego Comic-Con uh, you know, later this week. And I was just looking at the weather report for that, and I guess it's going to be a balmy 72 with a sea breeze. But that's outside, and you'll be trapped inside of that giant building. That's right. On the other hand, you were just at the, uh, what was it, the, the long lead? Or was this the full-on press junket for Abominable? It was like a edit bay visit, sort of. But Okay, yeah. cool. All right, so again... You know, uh, a bottle of snowman. You know, it must have been cool there. It, it was cool. Okay. Um. I, 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 look, we just we have to cut to the chase here because you. In fact, you and I were pre-gaming this thing. Abominable, as cute as the teaser trailer was, it is in fact the third film. Uh, in fact, I think it's being released one year to the day that Small Feet hit theaters <laughs> last year. So, and that was. The Warner Brothers, you know, take on the Abominable Snowman, and then we had Missing Link, uh, Laika's take on the Abominable, or excuse me, the the Bigfoot who wanted to meet his relatives, the Abominable Snowman, the Yeti. Uh, that was out in April of this year. So uh, this had to have come up that they they're the third through the door. Yes, I brought it up actually. <laughs> um, okay. And you know they said that they weren't they weren't super concerned. Um, I don't know if they looked at the numbers for the box office on those, but um, they just stressed how mo- the movies are completely different, and they really are uh, from what I saw of Abominable. Um, but it just seems like th- that was just kind of in the in the ether at the time. Um, yeah, I guess there's not really anything they can do about it at this point. I also asked if they were worried about encouraging people to go to Mount Everest given the recent um <laughs> I mean you've seen you've seen the the photos of people like lined up to take selfies at Everest and there were t- I think 10 people that died uh on the mountain yeah. and all that stuff yeah so yeah. they they were like well we can't do anything now although it was called Everest originally which I'm sure you remember um yeah true true in fact well, well the, the the that's what they call the eddie in this yes film, right? yes Everest. his name is Everest. okay yeah. or her name okay, who knows I, what it is yeah okay now you get to see basically 30 minutes of the film yes right? i and, did um what's our take on it you, you know i mean i, I you know I, was, I wasn't i wasn't super thrilled by that teaser and the but the animation is really beautiful. You know, it was a co-production with Pearl, which was formerly DreamWorks uh, Oriental Studios in China. Um, and the animation is really beautiful. The character designs are great. It's a really fun, like, travelogue type story. And the Yeti has these kind of magical powers that are really interesting. Um, so I think that you'll enjoy it. 
The Yeti is so cute, too, that it was just, like, crazy how adorable he is or she well, is. I, well, that's the thing. I, uh, based on the look of that character, I want a walk around of Everest in the Universal Parks now. I'm hoping, you know, they do that. But but at the same time, I mean, you know, that, that again, given what Missing Link, at least according to my research, only did, like, you know, again, the Leica stop motion, always beautiful work there. Chris Butler does this great stuff, but they spent a hundred million dollars and only got sixteen point six back at the box office domestically. Yeah, it, um, it was a, you know, it was a bomb. It, well, you know, but the interesting thing is that the you know I I remember I think you and I were talking about how it's an animated film basically for adults mm -hmm. and. You know the whole notion of you know if I if I look at Abominable, this is clearly you know the the trio of kids on this amazing adventure, had, you know taking the Eddie back to to Everest. You know it's it seems like you know this is two very different takes on the material. Yes. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it, and it's interesting the kind of concessions that they had to make for the Chinese because it is a Chinese co-production, so the you know the state has a say in things and. The reason why the girl, the kids are older is because that you have to legally be 16 to travel alone in China. Oh. Um, and we saw a lot of concept art of her as a younger kid, and um, they just didn't want that um, to reflect, you know, poorly on China. And the movie was at one time set in Shanghai, and then they had all these crazy specifications about what the city could look like and not look like. So then they made it just some kind of anonymous, like, metropolis, um, which is really interesting. I was actually worried that the magic stuff would get him in trouble because, you know, that Chinese censors crack down really yeah. hard on, on anything, go, you know, otherworldly. Um, mm -hmm. And they said that it was, quote-unquote, good magic. And since it came from something based in nature, that they weren't going to, you know, wrap it on the knuckles, which I thought was very interesting. Because, um, like, every ghost story over there, like, the last five minutes is, like, Scooby-Doo, and they explain, you know, that it's a, something terrestrial <laughs> that, that, that this has come from. But So I was really interested in that, too. Wow. Okay. Oh, before I forget here, the, we, we were touching on Missing Link. Missing Link, the, 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 the Leica, the Blu-ray DVD version of that actually went on sale. Well, this show goes live on... On July 24th, so uh, it went on sale yesterday, July 23rd, and well worth checking out. But um, I, again, I guess, well, look, I, I, you know, we of course wish the best for Abominable, but again, when, when you look at this year, you know, I mean, we've had eight animated features, seven animated features come out since February, mm -hmm. and of the bunch, uh, the only one that has even come close to meeting industry expectations is, of course, Toy Story 4. I, you know, it's it, it, it kind of interesting since our last show when we were we talked a bit about uh, whether or not, you know, if you, if you took into account uh, adjusted ticket prices for inflation, Toy Story 4 wasn't doing quite as well as Toy Story 3, and it was interesting. <laughs> I had a friend at the studio reach out who pushed out back very hard on that, it, in fact, was you know, in fact, what was really kind of bizarre is that they they cited the numbers of this past weekend and this past Monday about to show how you know Toy Story four and Toy Story three 
are it, it's almost eerie how they're tracking one another at the box office. I mean, for example, this is the third weekend that Toy Story 4 is in a domestic release. It sold uh, $20.9 million worth of tickets in North America. But if we jump back to July of 2020, same thing. Third weekend that Toy Story was in theaters, uh, that Lee Anchorage movie sold $21 million worth of tickets. So, so literally they're you know just a, a one percentage point apart. And the same, basically the same act... Uh, same thing for Monday's ticket sales, that the 25th day of, of Toy Story 3 being in release, it sold $2.79 million worth of tickets. This past Monday, again, Toy Story 4 is in its 25th day of domestic release, and it sold $2.8 million worth of tickets. So, you know, as far as Disney is concerned, these two, you know, it's, it's right where it's supposed to be, because, again, they were hoping that they'd get a, t- a Toy Story 3 level success with this fourth film. Uh, and since that movie sold, what is it, 14, or excuse me, $415 million worth of tickets in North America during its run at the box office, and Toy Story 4 currently sits at $349 million, uh in North America, they're like, we're fine. <laughs> you know, that, that's, right. You know, that there's no reason, you know, to, to fret about this. We're, we're we're going to be fine, and we assume that this is going to be our next uh, billion-dollar earner. And you know, but again, you know, at the same time, like my friend Kasha made to the effect that, well, you know, the numbers overseas aren't quite what we what we where we'd like them to be. But at the same time, uh, in fact, I made sure to include this this uh, quote from what he said. But 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 again, if you asked me in May if I thought. Disney's live-action Aladdin would be the studio's next film to sell a billion-dollar worth of tickets. I've said that's not what the research, our own internal box office projections, are telling us. And but you know that Guy Ritchie movie right now, Drew, is sitting at nine hundred and sixty-two million dollars. It's insane. It's insane. I, I, you know, that. Oh, do, do you remember when they were hoping it would get to eight hundred? Oh yeah. Know? I mean, I think that anything over. Four hundred was like a cherry on top. This is insane how much money this movie is making. Do you know one person who has seen it, let alone liked Aladdin? <laughs> Besides well, you me, know, you, 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 you know, you keep asking me if, if I've seen it, and it's like, and again, we we keep making plans to go out and 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 see it. But uh, again, according to Disney's own projections at this point, if if the trend holds, uh, sometime in the first ten days of August, this will join Disney's Billion Dollar Club. And, oh, wow! And Drew, care to guess how many billion dollar earners Disney Studios has has managed to produce and release? I, I'm um, assuming a lot, more than well, any, more than any other studio. I'm, I'm well, that that's true. Uh, you know, in fact, to date, there have been 19 of them. Uh, they actually. Started back in 2006 with Dead Man's Chest, and the year that Disney had uh, their biggest run of billion-dollar earners actually was 2016. That was the year Zootopia, Captain America: Civil War, Finding Dory, and Rogue One all blew past the billion-dollar barrier. But this year, if you know, if you factor in, you know, Captain Marvel and Avengers: Endgame are are already there you know they, right. they've already got you know but and we've got toy story 4 and aladdin now in release uh, and of course we've got favreau's lion king and the the conventional wisdom is that's going to do really well so 
you know, remember, you know, back in late April, early May, you know, uh, you know that's what they said about Dumbo. But, you know, that, that that's going to do really well. And, and Frozen 2 and Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Um, it, it's conceivable that Disney could have seven films this year, you know, uh, that crossed the billion dollar mark. And that's insane. That's, just, that's insane. Now, OK, so so back to Abominable. That's being released to theaters on September 27th. And it's only real competition at that point. Uh, we've got Angry Birds 2 coming out on August 14th, and that will probably be done and gone at that point. We then had Adam's Family uh, coming out about two weeks later on October 11th. Yeah. Um, but you know. But you're saying ju- you're just, you're just saying fantasy, uh, family uh, animated films, but there also is Maleficent in October, which I feel like could eat a lot of its lunch as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then from it, you know, continuing through the rest of the year, we've got, you know, November 22nd, Frozen 2 and Playmobil. Um, oh, did you see the uh, the Universal just sent out today that sort of behind the scenes thing on cats? Yep. And <laughs> Okay, here we go. I mean, I, you know, the weird thing is when they said they were doing a lot of motion capture and oversized sets and that sort of thing i pictured you know james cameron style volume um were you kind of surprised to see finished sets that they actually made them yeah i was a little bit because it's it looks interesting too because there's a finished set and then there's a blue screen behind it Mm -hmm. and i wonder how they're gonna match up the mocap cats against that with the background i mean it's gonna be a lot of work Oh, I agree. Um, but, I, agree. Uh, I mean, I've never been a huge Cats fan. I know Memory <laughs> is a great song, don't get me wrong, but I know you're really excited about Skimple Shanks the Railway Cat. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I forget, who was it, the guy who did? I mean, the thing is that Andrew Lloyd Webber is kind of infamous for there's always one hit song. Right. You know, whatever. If there's he does. a hit song out of you know what was the one about the uh, Starlight Express had a hit song for God's sakes. Well, so. you know that's that was the show that people went home humming the skates. All right, it's <laughs> like wow, they they skate. Nancy actually saw this. She was talking wow. about going to. I think she saw it in London. The the original production and was talking about you know the, the way the theater was set up. That at some point you actually. She I think she had say, seats. That were under the track that the people skated around on. Oh wow! Uh, so I mean, again, she said it was a you know it was a it, it was a spectacle, but at the same time, do you remember a song? It's like, well, it was a spectacle. Right. Um, but yeah, I you know I, I, I like well, this actually brings me to my favorite Letterman story. Did you ever see the the, the first episode of when David moved the show to CBS? I don't remember the first episode, but I remember those first few episodes. Okay. Well, they, they were, because you remember, they, they, they moved into the old Ed Sullivan Theater. And so, you know, at one point, the show was going on and there's a disturbance in the audience. And the camera pans, you know, and there's Paul Newman sitting in the audience. And he's, you know, sir, sir, is there a, you know, Dave from the stage, sir, is there a problem? And Newman stands up and it's like, 
yeah, where the hell are the singing cats? And it's like, oh, I'm stuck. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You're in the wrong theater. You, you have to go down to the, the Winter Garden. And thought, oh, all right. And he just gets up and leaves. That's you know, amazing. So, so now, you know, that that come December 20th, they, they, where the hell are the singing cats? The answer to that question will be in every multiplex in the United States. So, ugh. Well, if it's <laughs> half as good as Tom Hooper's Lame is, it's going to be... <laughs> really awful oh, oh okay wow but you got to give them points for the fact that the really for real trailer is going out in theaters with lion king yes i mean it will be online yeah. uh on thursday night so. okay all right i mean it'll well, be already online by the time people hear this but for you okay it's on thursday night. yeah but yes we'll chat about that on our next show and uh you know speaking of of the lion king uh, when you were down doing the junket, you actually got to talk with Hans Zimmer. Yes. Uh, you know, and you know, and, and listen to this before we get started here, folks. And um, <laughs> Mr. Zimmer has some very interesting stories about his second trip to the Pride Lands. Yes. Um, which we'll get to in a moment. Okay, we're back. All right. As I said at the top of the show. Uh, we're recording this on July 17th, 2019, and I already gave Drew crap about not being at Disneyland for the 64th birthday, but... Um, you know who else is not at Disneyland, Jim? Who is not at... Anyone else, <laughs> it seems like. Uh, okay. You know, uh, Dan and I actually talked about this on looking at Lucasfilm. I, I, me, personally, um, I think there was so much bad, unintentional messaging in regard to you know i mean the weird thing is you had all of this hype about you know uh oh my god you know you're gonna it's gonna be like you stepped into a star wars movie you're gonna be able to, to drink blue milk you're gonna be able to go to a canteen you're gonna be able to fly the millennium falcon but even as they're doing that there are all these messages about you know by the way we're you know we're restricting the size of strollers that can come into disneyland because we're worried about you know crowds and we're taking you know we're widening sidewalks we're getting rid of planters that have been in the park since 55 because we're worried about crowds and you know just this endless dumb drumbeat of hey we just built a, a second giant parking garage because there are so many people coming to this thing and uh, seriously drew sunday afternoon you know, I, I take Nancy down to Massachusetts to have dinner uh, with a couple of her friends. And, you know, as they're picking her up, you know, I mentioned that I'm, I'm you know, got to get back to we work on this podcast and about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And it, this, this, a friend, this friend of Nancy, Diane, is, uh, you know, uh, you know, lives in Massachusetts, 3,000 miles away from Anaheim. And, you know, without any prompting at all goes oh yeah that new land that disney opened up that's so crowded that people can't get in and it's like you know i i, I honestly think at this point there are going to be people who study how the anaheim version of star wars galaxy's edge got launched you know as a way not to message you know the opening of a brand new park because it's just you know the the it's going to be crowded things so overwhelmed it's going to be cool that you know right. they ended up with the summer that they just got and speaking of space related stuff of course this, this week is also the 50th anniversary of you know when man first walked on the moon and i i don't know if you saw the the thing that apple just put out we we no. we talked earlier 
this year about how they got the rights to do new animated stuff for the Peanuts characters. But they, they put out a, a teaser for a thing that will be released this fall called Snoopy in Space. Oh, wow. So, um, did, you, did you see that on the, in relation to that, that, that apparently they Charles Schultz you, did sort of like safety posters for uh, NASA back in the day, and Mondo is reissuing those posters oh, no. at Comic-Con. They're really, really cool. It's stuff like, you know... Be sure to wash your hands and things like that that they put up in the in the lab mm. um, that they're going to release commercially, which is pretty neat. That no, that is cool. Uh, it, well, it's speaking of things uh, to check out and chase down uh, at Comic Con this year. Uh, when when you're on the show floor, uh, you have to go check out the 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 what is it? The, the Nick's building an eighteen hundred square foot booth that's supposed to be bikini bottom. Oh, that's pretty cool. Well, but that's supposedly tied to again. We you know we like we talked on the previous show, uh, SpongeBob big birthday blowout, uh, which is tied to the twentieth you know anniversary of the character debuting on television. But just today, before we we started recording here, Drew, they 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 announced SpongeBob has re- been renewed for a thirteenth season on on Nick, and appropriately enough, they're going to do thirteen episodes. Wow. And while I'm nagging you, uh, you know, I've, I've been after you for a while now to watch, you know, BoJack Horseman. And it, I don't know if you saw just yesterday that, that when the Primetime Emmy nominations came down, that got selected for Outstanding Animated Program. Okay. All right. No, I didn't see that, but I'm excited okay. for it. Uh, I was looking for the animated nominees, and they don't put them out in the, like, big press release. No, they the don't. They don't. Like... You really do have to sort of beat the bushes there. But, yeah, the yeah. two Netflix shows got nominated, uh, BoJack and Big Mouth. Likewise, two Fox shows, uh, Simpsons and Bob's Burgers. And finally, one Cartoon Network which show, which, of course, you'll approve of, Adventure Time. Um, yeah. So for the final episode, which was so good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, the other thing, and I know we've talked about this previously, but just yesterday we finally got a date for when that Nick and Netflix Rocco's Modern Life show uh, is finally going to d- be available for streaming. And yeah, I f- and finally, and that is Friday, August ninth. Uh, um, yeah, did you see the poster called it a Netflix original film, but it's only 45 minutes long? Well, you know, Dumbo's only 64 minutes long. so That's true, so, that's true. So, or at least the original, as opposed to the, the Tim Burton, which, you know, what is that? It's 25 hours? You know, just, yes, yes. There we go. It's a marathon. There we go. Um, okay, so speaking of movies, um, uh, you know, it, it brings us to Hans Zimmer, who... I, you know, I gotta say, I love this guy's career. It is so crazy. Yeah, I mean, he he's had a long one, and didn't he started out in in pop music, right? Well, yeah, that's a, in fact. The, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that he supposedly could be seen in uh, the 1979 music video for "Video Killed the Radio Star," which was wasn't that the very first thing they played on MTV. Yeah, that was the very first music video, supposedly. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I'm going to have to look this up yeah. after after we record. But but yeah, I mean, he sort of slid in slowly. I mean, again, he was a you know sort of a, a working, you know, rock musician and sort of backed into a career. I mean, he he worked on the score for Beautiful Laundrette in 1985. He 
he produced the score for 1987, but uh, for 1987's The Last Emperor, but his first full-fledged film score was for Rayman, the 1988 Barry Levinson film, and and then from there, it, it just got kind of interesting. He does uh, Driving Miss Daisy in 1989, which of course wins all those Academy Awards and is, you know, sort of puts him in the spotlight, and then Mm-hmm. The very next year, he does uh, both Thelma and Louise. Uh, or excuse me, he does Thelma and Louise in 1991 and then A League of Their Own the following year. And then in, in 1994, uh, here comes The Lion King. Right. And, uh, you know, again, you, you got him to, to admit some, some very interesting things. I mean, I love the whole notion of one of the things that kind of drove him to do this was that at the time he had a six-year-old daughter and you know that that he wanted to have a movie that he could take you know his daughter to and but at the same time and i i love that this impacted how he worked on the score but uh, you know he you got him to talk about him losing his own dad at six right and, and yeah he was he connected very much to the lion king yeah, story you know oh well uh, tell you what we'll, we'll don't want to spoil too much of it but for me i guess what's intriguing about zimmer is if you look at his career you know in a weird sort of way he bonds with individual directors or filmmakers i mean mm-hmm. think about all the stuff he's made for jerry bruckheimer i mean he started with with uh, crimson tide in 1995 uh did the rock the, the following year and then what Pearl Harbor and uh, you know and of course all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies except uh, the last one Dead Men Tell No Tales and yeah I think there was some kind of falling out with with him at some point okay. but I'm not really sure what happens and then yeah. you know conversely when you look at you know uh, all the work he did for DreamWorks Animation I mean starting with Prince of Egypt and then you know there's this this like ten year run where you know, he does all the Kung Fu Panda movies, or, or the first two Kung Fu Panda movies. He does the first two Madagascar's, Megamind, he's Shark Tale. And, in fact, you know, and, and what's weird is that when Gore Verbinski went to do Rango, he reached out for him as well, and then, you know, followed up that animated Western with bringing him in to do Lone Ranger, which after Jack White dropped out, we have to rem- remember. Really? Do you remember that? Oh God! Yeah, that's right. That's right. You can hear a little bit of Jack's music in the um, in the Hell on Wheels scene when they walk into the kind of Bacchanal, but that's that's the only Jack White music that remains. But I I love his score for Rango and Lone Ranger. I think they're both really terrific. Mm-hmm. And 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 more to the point, you know, the the fact that well, he talks about why he went over to. To DreamWorks to do all these films. Um, well, we'll tell you what. Let, let's just jump into the audio and, and let folks hear that stuff. So let's talk about the the original movie first, okay. because I, from what I understand, the songs were written pretty quickly, and you gave them sort of the scope that they ended up. Well, I, you know, I don't, I never, I don't ever really know the complete history. Okay. But I don't think I was the first call. Right? Okay. I think a few people had a go at it. At, at the score? At or the, at the songs. Okay, at the songs. Okay. Um, and then they got the idiot in who didn't know how to write a musical. I kept saying, I want to write a musical. And, um, 
I just had this idea that it should start with this African voice. Mm-hmm. That it should be very atypical to a Disney movie. Right. You know? And I said there was Elton. I'm such an Elton fan. Right. You know? So I could either be terrified and try to absolutely slavishly copy what he was doing, or just try to sort of make it my own. And, and the brief was go and make these Western songs into African. Mm-hmm. Right? So. I just, I, I remember getting it completely wrong. They had said to me, "We want thirty seconds of Circle of Life, then it's a dialogue scene." Then I started off with the labor thing, and then I did the whole song, and the second chorus is different than the first because I had another idea, and it's like endless. Yeah, it's got not you know, um, and um, Don Hahn and you know the directors uh, Roger Ellis and um, Rob Minkoff came in. I played them this thing, and as I'm playing it to them, I'm going, shit, they asked me for 30 seconds, and then dialogue scene. And here's this, I don't know what it is, four minutes, with a big drum head at the end, which is only there because they were coming in, and I didn't have time to do anything else. <laughs> so it's a total accident, right? Really? And then they went off and huddled in a corner, and they were talking, and I thought they were basically talking about how they're going to fire me. And so I sort of walked over to them and said, look, if... if I, I remember it's supposed to be 30 seconds and then get quiet and underscore dialogue scene. I can do that. And they go, no, 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 no. We're not talking about that. We're talking about how we're going to change the whole movie, you know, the scene. Yeah. You know, take all that dialogue out because this works great. Yeah. Um, so so I, was, I was sort of unleashed at that moment. Right. If you see what I mean. Yeah, but did you feel like now you're really making a contribution to this movie that you didn't even know how no, to sort I of wasn't. approach? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, the other thing is, you know, I mean, I'm telling you all the truth. You know, the yeah. truth that never was revealed. Right. I never saw a script. Uh-huh. So it was just a room about roughly this size for storyboards. Yeah. And they were still making things up as they went. Mm-hmm. And Robin Roger would sort of would stick in a point of the storyboard and try to tell me the story and they'd get stuck at a certain place where they would start arguing with amongst themselves about which way the story was going to go. Right. And I'd just be sitting there and waiting for them to finish the argument and we never got to the end of the movie. Right. Well, you, I mean, you never did another Disney animated movie. You did Prince of Egypt. Well, no, it wasn't Disney. Which was great, yeah. right? But yeah. you, never, you never came back to Disney until... Well, I wasn't asked. Was there something that happened? Jeffrey Katzenberg left, and I thought he was interesting, and I uh, started working with him. And you know, you can't—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's only fair. You know, you right. can't go and, you know. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Did, did you? Already, yeah. Okay. That's what happened. Okay. Um, but obviously. Plus, 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 you know, plus, you know, it was like such a weirdly individual movie. Yes. You know, and and it was so about I, I was the one who was saying no all the time. Yeah. I don't want to do this movie. I okay, I'll do this movie, but I don't like musicals. Right? And them saying, We promise you it will never turn into a Broadway musical. Right. Right? Um <laughs> You know, cut so, to. So, cut to, right? Exactly. So it was all like this. Yeah. Okay, I'll do it because I want to take my daughter, who is six years old. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to show off as, dad, as a dad. I'll be honest about it. That's right. why I'm doing it. Um, next thing I know, I'm confronted with the death of a father. My dad died when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm her age. 
and I've tucked all these dark memories away, you know, and, and now suddenly I need to go and open those dark places up. Because mm -hmm. how else am I going to write? Right. You know? Well, um, I mean... So that, that actually was relatively heavy. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. Yeah. But you, you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. You do it, it's a massive hit. They come back to you now to do this. Was there well, any... No, 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 but, uh, you know, massive hit. Uh, I mean, okay, let me tell you a story. Give me a story. Right. Um, Oscars. Win an Oscar, have a fabulous night, go you, out... You call Hugh Grant this. fluffy? I do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Did he give you shit? Um, I never watched the Oscars. Okay, I, 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 watched is, last, I watched it last night. All so, okay. I know is I, I got off that stage so fast that they couldn't even play the, you know, like, get off the stage right. music. Right, yeah. Um, it was partied all night. 10 o'clock, I'm having a meeting with Tony Scott and Jerry Brockheimer and Don Simpson on Crimson Tide. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'm, I, I just won an Oscar. They don't even mention it. I play them the, f the first piece I'd written. They go, it's completely wrong. And it was like, off, back to reality. Right. And that was good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> There's nothing more pretentious than somebody going, I was won an Oscar. Yeah. You know? It's like, I didn't even get to say that sentence <laughs> with those guys. It's like, roll up your sleeve, why are you late, get, let's get to work. <laughs> Well, was there any trepidation for you coming back to this? Was there, or was it just sort of like, if they're doing it, I want to be a part of it? Um, there was a bit. There was a bit, but there was a sense of ownership. As right. Well. You know? That's what it's Alan Macon like, told me when I talked to him about Aladdin. Right. He says, if they're doing it, I've got to Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, it's like, plus, I know this sounds really crazy, but there were always bits in it which bugged me a little, mm -hmm. which I thought I could have done better. Uh-huh. You know, so um, who gets who gets a chance to redo? You know, yeah. Nobody in the world ever complained about these bits, right? You know, plus I had this sort of weird experience where, where you know, my friends, my musician friends, kicked me out of the studio. Going, there comes a point in every film composer's life where you have to actually look the audience in the eye and stop hiding in your dark room <laughs> and hiding behind a screen and. Out of one reason or the other, I ended up playing Lion King at Coachella, which I thought was totally inappropriate. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Until I played it, and I'm going, whoa, look at this. Yeah. All these people, are, you know, it, it, their feelings, you know, there, there's an honesty in the emotion. It's not sentimental. So we're back, and, and again, I, I just love that he followed Jeffrey Katzenberg over to DreamWorks because he thought Jeffrey was interesting. Yeah, more. I was more interested in the fact that he was like, "Well, Disney never called me to do another one." Yeah, which is just—it's—it's it's fascinating given how much of a cultural and commercial success The Lion King was. I I, I totally agree, uh, but but at the same time, I I love his attitude that one of the reasons he said yes to working with Favreau when the live action one is that, you know, he wanted to go back and fix the mistakes. That he'd made mm -hmm. with the animated one. That it's like, oh, you know, how many times does an artist get the, the chance to go back and do that sort of thing? Yeah. But wow. Um, I, I have to admit, when you got him to talk about the Co uh, Coachella thing, I I actually went and 
and chase that down. Have you have you seen the video of that? Yeah, I think that you. I haven't seen it, but I think you can actually buy like a um like a DVD or a CD of that live recording of his last tour or the tour. That, is he currently on tour with well, this thing? Well, uh, okay, the World of Hans Zimmer, a symphonic celebration, toured North America last year. In, okay. in fact, uh, uh, my friend Gary Scheingold got tickets for himself and his wife uh, as an anniversary present and said it was one of his favorite nights of all time you know in a symphony hall i mean he just did he played everything it was you know just this amazing and to sit there and watch him direct this full orchestra doing this but yeah this uh actually um starts up the the tour starts up again in hong kong in late september and then proceeds to australia in october and i, I think it's headed to belgium and germany after that but yeah it's just i i you know again to 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 watch this guy work and more to the point what's interesting is he brings a number of the musicians who you know for example I, I'm, I'm blanking the gentleman who worked on the score for the pirates movie but he was like you know i need the ocarina you you have to come with me so um <laughs> but uh but on the other hand you know and again to show you how small the world this this world actually is and of course, one of the uh, projects that, that Mr. Zimmer worked on is a Mission Impossible movie. Uh, Mission Impossible 2, is that right? Or? Yeah, released the same year as his hugely influential score for Gladiator. And you can actually hear some kind of carryover between the scores. So I hope to have him on Light the Fuse one day. But, you know. Well, well speaking of Light the Fuse, what, what, what do we have coming up? Uh... Uh, we're still in the middle of our music month, so we're going through each movie musically. Mm-hmm. Uh, one by one with clips from the movies and stuff like that so uh that should be fun and we have some some good episodes coming up for for august too so just keep listening very cool okay uh well on my side of the fence the usual pile of crud folks we've got disney dish with lentesta we've got uh looking at lucasfilm with dan zare uh we've also got universal joint with dustin fuse uh we you know <laughs> In fact, as soon as I finish up with this one, I got to pivot and, and get back to work. And I, I want that with Michelle Valladolid. We're trying to, in fact, the very same thing you're dealing with, Drew. You know, the, all the stories coming out of Comic Con. It's of course all the merch that you know gets introduced there. So you know, we'll be talking that up in the next show. And then of course we have the marvelous Disney podcast with the amazing Aaron Adams. Tell you what, folks, if you like what Drew and I do, if you could do us a favor, head on over to iTunes and rate and recommend our shows. Uh, If you really, really, really like what we do here, uh, if you could subscribe to Bandcamp, that helps keep the lights on. And I guess that's it, Drew. So, you know, you've got to pivot and start packing for San Diego, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm only there a couple days. I'm kind of making a strategic... Hit okay. This year, ninja so ing I'm, in, ninja ing out, or yes, I am going on Friday, and I'll be back. I'll be leaving on Sunday morning. Wow. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, I have to admit, you know, when it comes to San Diego Comic Con, I typically I try to do it every other year. In fact, you know, ideally, what I do is, you know, I'll do the D twenty three Expo one year and than comic-con the next year because otherwise the one year i did them both it was you know you just (laughs) yeah i think the phrase was lose the will to live 
Yeah, it's pretty exhausting. So, well, all right. Well, anyway, here's hoping you have a great time down there and that you'll come back with all sorts of fun animated-related stories. And we oh, you know I will. Okay. Well, we'll talk about those in the next show. So until then, folks, thanks for listening, and take care.